0: I'm Aaron Elmore, I'm lead pastor here at The Kirk, and my first question for you this morning is, would anybody like to trade places with me for the next 30 minutes? (laughs) I'd like to start with a few opening comments, as I always do. The first one is I want to let you know uh, regarding communion, that um, we've been using the little self-serve packets for a while now, and um, we're going to reinstate communion by intention starting with our Maundy Thursday service. So that will be later next month. And um, yeah, that'll be something to celebrate, and so we'll continue to have the little goblets if you want to participate that way, Um, but we're excited to be able to come forward and share in communion together in that way. Uh, And then the other comment I wanted to make was, um, wow, that new song we sang this morning was awesome, The Finished Work of Christ. Uh, I love that. Really beautiful. So it's always a joy to worship together with all of you. Well, welcome to Bad News Sunday at the Kirk. I'm, I'm really surprised how many of you came today. Uh, maybe you were not anticipating that it was Bad News Sunday, but you should have known because last week was good news, and this week we have bad news. You see, the way Paul structures this, he gives us the good news, and then he goes into the bad news for a little bit, and then we get back to a lot of really good news. But I think we'll, what we'll see is that even this bad news is put within the context of good news, a bigger story of good news. The thing is, you have to understand how bad the bad news is before you can really appreciate how good the good news is. The bad news is that we are sinners, all of us. We've rebelled against God. We've rejected the truest, purest version of life. And therefore, there are consequences for this. Now, many people in Paul's day thought they could just live their life however they wanted and that there would be no consequences. We know that that is true today as well. There's nothing new under the sun, Scripture tells us. But we must face the reality that sin is real, and it has consequences. It has effects in our lives individually, in our families, in our communities, and in our world. And so in this section of the letter, Paul describes the nature of human sin and its consequences, showing us the need for this good news, this gospel. He explains that all humans, apart from the gospel, are subject to God's wrath. That's a hard message, but it's true. Because of our sin, we are objects of God's wrath, apart from this good news of the gospel. Until we understand how utterly desperate we are for it, human pride will keep us from surrendering faith and entrust in Jesus Christ. And so we have to understand This bad news. Paul presents a pretty dark picture of humanity. I think we can agree. Uh, That's not a fun passage to read. It's not a fun passage to preach on. In fact, Paul articulates 21 different manifestations of sin, and we're going to get into that a little bit this morning. But it is against this backdrop of darkness that the light and the brightness of the gospel shines all the more. We have to understand how dark it is before we can appreciate this light which has come into the world. And so verse 18 introduces us to this bad news section of the letter. Verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now God's wrath is not this wild, angry reaction. We know from scripture that God is patient, that God is loving, that he is slow to anger. Exodus 34, which gets quoted all over the place throughout the rest of the Bible. God is patient. We saw it in the cycle of judges where people did what was right in their own eyes and they just kept going further away from God and then they come back to God. And God is patient. He keeps bringing them back. We see God's patience and we see God's love in the story of the prodigal son, right? That God is is drawing this Uh, rebel back to himself. We see God's patience time and time again, but yet God cannot tolerate sin forever. He is holy and he is just and right. And so it says that God's wrath is being poured out in the world. That's a present tense thing. It's being poured out right now. We know there's a future pouring out of God's wrath that will come one day when God ends history as we know it, and he will pour out his wrath as he pours out his grace. That day is coming and we're told that. But we also see that his wrath is being poured out in time through the events of history. And so it says God's wrath is being poured out against two things, godlessness and wickedness. So what are those? Well, godlessness is a disregard for God. It's a failure to see that God is God. It's living as though there were no God. It's a failure, a breakdown in our vertical relationship. So what is wickedness? Well, wickedness refers to a disregard for human rights of love and truth and justice. It's a breakdown of our horizontal relationships. So if you see it here, basically what Paul is saying through godlessness and wickedness He's giving us examples of what Jesus said is the greatest commandment. What's the most important thing? That you love God and you love others, right? The vertical relationship and the horizontal relationship. Love God and love others. But Paul says, when you deny that there's a God, you deny the truth, you will live in godlessness, failure to love God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and streak, and you will live in godless uh, wickedness. You will not love your neighbor as yourself. And so God is right to judge the world. He is just in his judgment. Now, you could make a case that all sin ultimately has its root in the sin of idolatry. Idolatry. In other words, all sin problems are worship problems. A failure to worship God with all of who we are. A phrase in cap- uh, verse 25 captures the root problem well. It says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, And they worshipped and served, created things rather than the creator. That's idolatry. Tim Keller has pointed out that the Bible describes the human heart as an idol factory. In other words, we're really good at creating idols. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Keller defines an idol this way. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. That's an idol. James Smith says in his book, You Are What You Love, since our hearts are made to find their end in God, we will experience a besetting anxiety and restlessness when we try to love substitutes. In other words, you're never going to be at peace. You're never going to feel right until you're fully loving God and your neighbors, until you're living the way that God created you to live. But here's the thing, this this bad news of God's judgment, that God is pouring out his wrath on the world, it's still, in effect, good news. Because what it means is that God is not willing to leave the world in its current condition. God's judgment is actually part of his grace. God says, I will not leave you where you're at. He says, I'm going to fix this problem, this human condition. And so his judgment is necessary in order to get us to the place of restoration. So even the wrath, even the bad news, I know I said it's bad news Sunday here at the Kirk, but it's still ultimately good news for us that God is righteous and he is a just judge and he has determined that there must be a setting of the world to right again. That comes through the gospel. But we have to move through this bad news a little bit slowly in order to get to the good news starting again in chapter 3. So the rest of chapter 1 gives us an explanation of why God is just in his judgment. First we see the movement of idolatry. Paul argues here that the whole world has access to the natural revelation of God. But apart from divine grace, we won't adequately respond to this revelation. Here's Paul's argument basically here. He says... Look, everybody knows that there's a God. Some people try to deny it. They reject it. They don't want to think about it. It makes them uncomfortable. But at the end of the day, as human beings, here's the deal. You know that there's a God. Look around. Look at the world. Look at the incredible complexity of life. Think about human beings. Think, just think about anything in the world, and you have to conclude that there is a God, that there's some kind of divine being out there that is not me, that is way more powerful than I am. There must be a God. Paul says, look around. And therefore, because of that, we're responsible, we're accountable to the fact that we know there's a God. And yet we try to deny it. We don't live as if what God matters is the most important thing in our life. And yet we also need more than this general revelation. We need the gospel because people can't get from sunsets to subsidiary atonement on their own. I love this phrase. I think it was a pastor named Tony Merida that I heard it from first, right? People can't get from sunsets to subsidiary atonement on their own. We need the gospel, right? We need more than just the beauty and creation of the world. We need specific knowledge of who God is, which is why we all need this gospel, But what do rebellious people do? What, do? what do we do at times? We respond poorly. We try to suppress the truth, hold it down, reject it. And when we deny the truth, we walk in darkness. And we need the light, the light of the gospel. So what happens when people refuse to acknowledge God or depend on him? They don't stop worshiping or fail to worship. In fact, we're all worshiping beings. Every human being that's ever walked on planet Earth As a worshiper, we all worship something. And so what he's saying here is that if you don't worship God, you'll worship something else. You'll worship a created thing. You'll worship another person. You'll worship yourself. You'll worship money. You'll worship power. You will find something to worship. Now here's the deal. I know that most of you all are probably not going to find yourself worshiping a golden cow at any point in your life. If you have done that, just don't admit it, okay? I know that we don't worship idols like that. that. That's not the way it works. But even if we don't outright reject God, we all have kind of a mixed allegiance in our life. We have these little idols that we find ourselves worshiping, whether we realize it or not. And so for those of you who think, okay, I'm already a follower of Jesus. I don't need to hear this bad news. I've already heard the good news. No, you need to hear it again. Because the bad news is still at work in your life. Even though you've become a new person, you still find yourself walking in old ways. You find yourself struggling with these idols in your life. It's a perennial human issue. And our false worship and our idolatry always leads to misery. Verse 24. We see the misery of idolatry. It says, therefore, God gave them over. This is an important phrase. It shows up three times in this section. In fact, part of how God uh, pours out his wrath is that he gives people over to their sin. He lets them pursue things that they think will make them happy. Again, think of the story of the prodigal son. This young man runs away, the father lets him go and take his inheritance and blow it and be a rebel and do all of that. And sometimes handing someone over to their sin and letting them live in it results in them having a turnaround experience in their life. Sometimes that actually brings us back to God. It did with the story of the prodigal son. He came back, he realized, he came to his senses, he woke up and thought, this is stupid, why am I living like this? There is a much better way to live. And the truth is that it can be in our lives as well. Part of God handing us over is for us to see the end, which is that our sin will lead to misery. But here's the tricky part. Sin can bring temporary fun. It can. Sometimes sin is fun for a while. It brings pleasure. It's enjoyable. In fact, Hebrews 11.25 uses this phrase, "...the fleeting pleasures of sin." right? Sin can be fun, but it only lasts for a while. It can make us feel better. It works, right? Until it doesn't work. But those things can never truly make us happy because sin involves turning from that which will ultimately satisfy you, God, and turning to something else that will not be able to make you ultimately satisfied. Idols can be money, sex, approval, Power, achievement, things that are good but can become bad when we turn them into idols. We pursue them because we think they'll make us free, right? Isn't that what it means to live the good life, just to live however you want and pursue whatever you want? That's how you'll be free, right? Just whatever feels right, go and pursue that. That's the definition of freedom, isn't it? But the problem is when we pursue those things, they don't actually bring us freedom. They bring us into enslavement. Because then we have to have those things. We love them too much. We look to them too much to give us what only God can give us and then we're unsatisfied. Now, just to break the tension of a very serious topic, I'll give you an example of of an addiction that is uh, mostly tolerated in our day. And that is the addiction to caffeine. I'm guilty. But when I really think about it, it's like the more coffee I have, the more I want and the more I need in order to get the kick to get me through the day. And then I end up, I'm addicted to it. I'm enslaved to it. I have to have it or I'm not a very nice human being. Sometimes I find myself in in situations like on a mission trip or traveling where I don't have access to that morning coffee. And it's a spiritual discipline, folks. It ain't easy. And that's I'm not necessarily calling caffeine addiction a sin, but I'm, I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. I should examine that in my own life. But the cycle of sin <laughs> is that we get to a point where we have to have something. And then it enslaves us. So when we deny or suppress the reality of God through our unbelief, our wickedness, our rebellion, our idolatry, then our lives reflect this as well. If there is no God or we think that there's not one and we live as though God were only marginally important, then we will reject his vision for how we should live our lives and how we should live in a community with one another. The result of this is an erosion of morality. And this is what Paul says happens, starting in verse 26, the morality of idolatry. Paul begins here by offering an extensive, although not comprehensive, list of sins that result from idolatry. When we fail to respond to God's truth and keep him at the center of our lives, our morality will reflect this rebellion. So Paul starts the list with a more detailed explanation here of unnatural sexual relations, which are contrary to God's divine design. Namely here, in this context, he's talking about the sin of same-sex relationships. Now, the reasons for homosexual attraction are many and complex, but Scripture is clear that acting on such attraction is against God's design. I think many people today confuse uh, interest or attraction with something being natural. So the thought is, okay, if I feel a certain way, if, something, if I'm attracted to something, then where does that come from? Well, it must come from God, so then maybe it's natural. But the problem is there's many things that I desire, many things that I'm inclined toward, that I'm attracted to that are not God's best for me. And my personal feelings can't determine whether something is right or not. We all have to suppress to manage feelings that we have. We're all attracted to various sins in our life. And so we can't just say it must be natural just because we feel a certain way about it. Scripture is clear that homosexual relationships are a sin. Now again, to be clear, no sin is unforgivable. No sin puts you outside of God's mercy. But Paul is saying here, and how I understand Scripture, is that he's saying that it's sinful. I know it's not a very popular view today. That puts me at odds with many people, including friends. But all I can tell you is that my job is to stand up here and explain to you what the Scriptures are saying. And I believe that it's clear. Now, some people argue that Paul is not talking about all homosexual relationships. He's saying only just those that are are abusive or those that are not healthy. He's not talking about um, monogamous ones. The problem is he doesn't have that nuance here. Paul doesn't nuance it. He just lists it here, and, and also in 1 Corinthians 6, there's no nuance to either of those. Now, I also want to say and point out here that there are many other sexual sins besides this one. It's not about singling out one particular sin. That scripture is clear that lust, that adultery, that fornication, having sex before you're married, that that's sex outside the context of covenantal marriage is always contrary to God's design for his world. It doesn't meet his standard of what is best. And Paul also makes sure that he doesn't single out one sin as worse than others. In fact, he goes on to make a list that, guess what, every one of us would make. He goes on to talk about The morality of idolatry, and he gives us 21 different manifestations of sinful human behaviors. It's a very striking and kind of depressing description of human activity. And he doesn't even cover them all. He's just giving us categorical examples. And so Paul does talk about sins of a sexual nature, but let's make sure We recognize that on this list, both murder and disobeying your parents are in the same list. That homosexual activity and lack of mercy are both on the same list. You see what I'm saying here? Paul's point is that we are all sinners and we all need the gospel. And that's the only hope of our salvation and of transformation detailing some sins that were popular in many of the major metropolitan areas of his day. He talks about topics that are relevant in all times to people, but he is very clear to give a list that none of us would want to take a quiz on and post on our social media account, right? How many of these 21 do you struggle with? Anybody want to post that one publicly? I know I don't. Here's the point. All of us are on that list, right? And a lot more than one. He goes into great detail. We all need the gospel. Whether you're a gossip or a slanderer or disobedient to your parents, it's a long list. It's comprehensive. We all need the gospel. and We all need God's grace. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul gives a similar list of sins, and he goes on to follow it up with this beautiful statement that I want to end with. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 11, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The gospel places us all on the same playing field. Right? Jesus lifts up those who are crushed by life and he humbles those who seem to be lifted up by life. He places us all in the same playing field and says you are all sinners but you are all in need of my grace and he offers it to us. A new way of life. He says you don't have to live enslaved to how you used to be. You can become a new person in me and by my grace. That is the good news. We've got to understand the bad news or you won't even know why you need the good news. So I hope that your heart will be open to the knowledge that whoever you are, no matter what, what position in life you come from, you are a sinner. You'll be able to recognize that, but also to see that there is a Savior and that there is hope and there is good news. That's what we're seeking. That's what we all need. Will you join, me to, join with me as we pray together? Father, I thank you for this good news. And Lord, I even thank you for the bad news. A reminder that you're not leaving us alone. You're not just handing us over to our sinful ways and rebellion. But God, you are drawing us back by incredibly good news. I pray for each and every person in here today that, that they would deal with the sin in their life, whatever it is, but that they would deal with mercy and love with other people who may struggle with other sins. God, ultimately, that we would all together try to seek you and to seek your mercy and your grace and to find hope through the finished work of the cross, the finished work of your gospel. God, make us into these new people. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today or anyone maybe listening online that hasn't surrendered, that hasn't seen that bad news and repented and turned away from that old life and turned to you. God, I pray that you would be working in their heart and their life. That they would surrender to you, all of who they are. That they would follow you and walk in your ways and find a new and better life. God, you are our hope. We trust in you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.